Luke 10, 38, and I'll read down to chapter 11, verse 13. Luke 10, 38. As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet, listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do all the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered, you're worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed, or indeed only one. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. One day, Jesus was praying in a certain place. When he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray just as John taught his disciples. He said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who sins against us. And lead us not into temptation. Then Jesus said to them, Suppose you have a friend. And you go to him at midnight and say, Friend, lend me three loaves of bread. A friend of mine on a journey has come to me and I have no food to offer him. And suppose the one inside answers, Don't bother me. The door is already locked and my children and I are in bed. I can't get up and give you anything. I tell you, even though he will not get up and give you the bread because of friendship, yet because of your shameless audacity, he will surely get up and give you as much as you need. So I say to you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven Give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Chris. Let's pray together. Your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. So, Father, we come before your word, your precious word, your unchanging word tonight with expectations, with desires to hear from you and a yearning and a longing to sit and to listen to you. So speak, Lord, please speak to us. 
Open our eyes to see wonderful things. Open our ears to hear. Uh, Lord, we want to know you better. We want to love you more. So speak, Lord, because we are listening. In Jesus' name. On the screen, it's a big idea for this week. God speaks to those who take time to listen. And God listens to those who take time to pray. It's a really very simple sermon tonight. God loves for us to sit and to listen. God longs for you and I to take the time in our, our days and our weeks just to sit with him to sit with his word open and to listen with our ears open and our eyes open to what he's trying to teach us. God loves it when you and I give him the time to feast on his word. And God loves it when you and I take that time just to pour out our hearts to him, our desires, our requests, our longing, our hurts, our pains, because God is there. Do you believe that God is there, longing to speak to you, longing to hear you? The Bible and prayer are just two extraordinary gifts from God, aren't they? For those who know me, I love reading church history. I love looking at biographies of men and women of the past. Charles Spurgeon, Charles Simeon, John Bunyan, Billy Graham, John Stott, Cory Ten Boom, Amy Carmichael, and I love reading about all the books they've written, all the ministry they've done, all the lives have been transformed. But the more I read, the more I realize the one thing they all have in common they love to spend time with God. They love to spend time with their God. Charles Spurgeon said this the more you read your Bible and the more you meditate on it, the more you'll be astonished by it. He who is but a casual reader of the Bible does not and cannot know the height, the depth, the length, the breadth of the mighty meanings contained in those pages. You'll find the Scriptures enlarge as you enter them and nobody ever outgrows the Scriptures. The book widens and deepens with your years. See, Spurgeon wouldn't want to be known for the, the churches he's planted or the, the books he's written or the sermons he's preached. He wants to be known as a man of God who loves God and meditates on the Word of God. Towards the end of his life, Billy Graham was asked if he had any, if he had any regrets. What's, what's one thing he'd do differently? He said this, I'd spend more time in my spiritual nurture seeking to grow closer to my God so I could become more like Christ. I would spend more time in prayer, not just for myself, but for other people. And I'd spend a lot more time studying the Word of God and meditating on its truth, not for the sermons I preach, but to apply it to my own life. If you're here tonight and you want your Christian life transformed, if you're here tonight and you want to, to flourish in your faith, if you're here tonight and you don't want a mundane walk with God, you want a marvellous walk with God, you don't want a, a drudgery but a delight in God, it's a really simple answer, Bible and prayer. Bible and prayer. Spend more time in the Word of God 
and more time talking to God. Uh, Rico Tice, who is one of the pastors of the Evangelists of All Souls in Langham Place in London, uh, was asked, what, what, what amazing things is God doing in your church at the moment? He said this, uh, people are reading their Bibles and they're praying. No, no, what amazing things is God doing in your church at the moment? That's it. People are reading their Bibles and they are praying and that is amazing. It would totally transform your life and this church if we all love to sit and listen to God and talk to him in prayer. That's what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. You love to listen and you love to pray. So in Luke chapter 10 and back in verse 25, an expert in the law has come to test Jesus as teacher what must I do to inherit eternal life? And remember what Jesus said? Jesus says, you need to love God with all your soul, heart, mind, and strength. That vertical love for God. And then love your neighbor as yourself. Remember that? And Jesus explained what it meant to love your neighbor as yourself with that power of the good Samaritan that we looked at two weeks ago. Now go and be a neighbor. Go and love anybody and everybody who comes across your path, love them with a, a selfless, costly, practical, extravagant love. That's what it means to do the horizontal, love your neighbours yourself. But how do you do the vertical? How do you love God with your soul, heart, mind and strength? There are passages today, you, you listen to him and you talk to him. It's not rocket science. Let's focus on the listening God speaks to those who take time to listen. Now, I know, I know that you've got a busy schedule. I know that we all live hurried lives with full schedules, full of full activities, good things, important things. We're also busy. And I know that you, like me, have got a long to-do list. Every day there's something urgent to do, something you must get done that day. Emails to answer, phone calls to respond to, the garden to do, the car to clean, the groceries to shop, the gym to attend. But here's the issue, the, the urgent in your life often takes priority over the important, the most important. That's the issue. What's the most important thing that you do every day? What's the best thing you could do every day? And you know the answer is time with God. It's listening to God. It's time to, to sit at the feet of Jesus and hear his word. It's time spent devouring God's word in that undistracted, unhurried, precious time with your God. You know that. But so often we let the urgent squeeze out the most important. And that's why I love this story of Mary and Martha. It's unique to Luke's gospel. And it's a story full of surprises. It was surprising that, that Jesus chose a Samaritan as the example of loving your neighbor well. And in the first century, it is very surprising he chose a woman called Mary as the classic example of what it means to love God well. I love that about Jesus. He just welcomes all people. And this story is a story about choices. These two women who made different choices. Martha 
And she chose to work and to serve and to do stuff and to keep herself busy and rushing around. And what she did was not wrong. It was just that Mary chose better. That's the key word in the whole parable, whole story. It's there in verse 42. Mary has chosen what is better. And the better thing is listening to Jesus and time with Jesus. That's the best thing that you can do. Let's look at the story, verse 38. As Jesus and his disciples, now that could be the 12 disciples, it could be the, the 72 disciples. We don't, we don't know. Jesus' disciples were on their way, on their way where? They're heading towards Jerusalem. And they come to a village. We're not told what the village is called, but we know from John's gospel that Mary, Martha and Lazarus live in a place called Bethany which is close to Jerusalem. So they come to Bethany and there's a woman called Martha and she's so hospitable, she's so welcoming, she opens her home to Jesus. That's the context. This kind, hospitable woman called Martha. And here she is, she's hosting a special guest, the Lord Jesus Christ. She's Got people coming in for dinner, maybe the 12, maybe 72. She might be throwing a dinner party for 100 people. And so she's busy. She's busy cooking, she's busy cleaning, busy preparing the table, making sure everything is perfect. She is working really hard. In fact, the word used for work, down in verse 41, or verse 40 rather, is the word to serve, to minister. So so Martha is serving. Now what's Mary doing? She's sitting. Martha is serving and Mary is sitting. Just sitting. Just sitting and listening. Sitting at the foot of her saviour and listening to what he says. She's there in verse 39. She's lapping up every word that Jesus speaks. She's just having her soul being nourished by the Lord Jesus. And to be honest, I find myself feeling for Martha, don't you? She's busy. I mean, she could use another hand in the kitchen and you imagine her in the kitchen and she's muttering under her breath, come on, Mary, get off your butt and give me a hand. Come on, you bludger. Now, now Martha, now she could she could have chosen to subtly and quietly and gently just come and whispered in Mary's ear, hey, sister, you know, there's a lot of mouths to feed. I need some help. Could you come and help me? But Martha has missed the point. She, she comes storming up to Jesus and says, Lord, don't you care? Don't you care that my sister has left me to do all the work by myself, to serve by myself? Now tell her to help me. You kind of expect Jesus to say, oh, you've got a good point there, Martha. Come on, Mary, give your sister a hand. But he doesn't say that because Martha has missed the opportunity. She's got all her priorities wrong. She's not choosing the better thing. And the better thing is sitting at the feet of Jesus and listening. And I love how tender Jesus is. The tone of verse 41 is that, that pastoral Martha. Oh, Martha. He's not rebuking her. He's gently correcting her. 
Martha, you are so anxious. You're worried and upset about so many things, all this stuff on your plate, the, the peeling the potatoes, the cooking the food, the cleaning, the setting the table. But few things are needed. In fact, only one thing is needed. And Mary has chosen what is better. And then he adds this, this little phrase. Do you understand what it means? It, it will not be taken away from her. So the thing is that the, the best meal that Martha could prepare with the best cut of meat and the best choice of wine and the best table setting, it might be beautiful, it might be marvellous, but he lasts for a moment, doesn't it? And then you're hungry again. And then you're back in the kitchen preparing more food. But the food that Mary has chosen, the bread of life, that will satisfy her for eternity. And she's chosen to feed herself on the word of God, to nourish her soul. And that will transform her and equip her and shape her and enrich her and nourish her. He's not condemning Martha, but he is commending Mary. Let me just say, doing stuff for the Lord, of course it's important. It's good, it's essential, but it's not the main game. They're sitting at the feet of Jesus, devouring his word, feasting on the word of God. That is the most important meal that you can give yourself each day. It's, it's almost like Martha is, is falling in line and Mary's falling in love. Martha is falling in line. She's all about duty, all about obligation, all about serving. But Mary, she's falling in love with Jesus. She's sitting and lapping up every word that he says. And we don't know what Jesus was teaching her. It doesn't tell us. It's not important. The important thing is that she's taken the time to listen. She's devoted to the Lord. That's the, the better thing that she does. Now, you know that. And I know that. We know that if we consistently spend good time with our Lord... Our lives will be so much richer. We know all that. But it's really hard, isn't it? You know, we open our Bibles at Genesis with great gusto and we're excited by Exodus and we labor through Leviticus and we are numb by numbers and, and then we just give up. Why is it important? Why is it important that we feast on the Word of God? Because the Word of God provides you with the wisdom of God to do life. That's the claim of the Scriptures. 2, 2 Peter chapter 3 says that the Word contains everything you need for life and godliness. Everything. To live life well, to live a, a godly life that honours you is here in the Word of God. Now, 2 Timothy 3 says that it's through the Word of God you are thoroughly equipped for every good work. If you want to live well, just know the Word of God well. Because the Word actually puts life's pressures into perspective, you know. Here's Martha. She's stressed by preparing a meal. She wants everything to be perfect and right and proper. And I'm sure she's thinking, I've got no time to stop and listen. And I've made that mistake on many occasions. Rushed into my day thinking, I'm too busy today to spend time with God. But on those days where I have that moment with God, suddenly all the pressures of the day are put into perspective. Nothing's changed about my day, but I've been changed by the word of God. 
And it's through the Word of God that you grow in your appreciation and your love and your intimacy with God. You're not just ticking off a Bible reading plan. You're building this relationship. So why don't we listen? What stops you from spending time with God? I think Martha teaches us two things not to do. Don't be distracted. That's the first. See that word in verse 40? Martha was distracted. Her mind was on other things. Preparing food, baking bread, roasting the meat, chopping the vegetables. Same with us today. We get distracted, don't we? Emails to check, a presentation to prepare, washing to do, shopping to do, social media to check. And all these things, good things sometimes, they distract us. And we neglect to put the most important thing in place. I'm sure you've heard the illustration of the university professor who brings a jar into his students, this massive jar and these massive rocks. And he puts all the rocks into the jar, these big rocks, and they all fit into the jar, and the jar is full. And he says to the students, is, is this jar full? And they say, of course it's full. You can't fit any more rocks in there. He says, no, it's not full. So he picks up some gravel, and he pours in the gravel, and it fits around the rocks. He says to the students, is this, is this jar now full? And they say, yeah, it's now full. No, it's not, he says. He picks up some sand, and he pours the sand in, and the sand fits into this jar that looks full, but it's not full. He said, no, is, is this jar full? And the students say, I think it is, but you're probably going to show me it's not. And he grabs a, a jug of water and pours the water into the jar, and the water fits in as well. And he says, what's the point of that illustration? And one well-meaning student says, I think you're trying to teach us that no matter how full our schedules are, you can always fit more things in. He says, that's not the point at all. It's the exact opposite. And unless you put those big rocks in first, you will never fit them in. If you put the gravel and the sand and the water in first, you will never fit in those big rocks. And I think that's what, that's what God is saying to us. Unless you put the, the most important, the big rock in first, time with God. All the, the gravel and the sand and the water of your daily life will just squeeze out your time with God. So no distractions. And no stress. That's the other mistake that Martha made. See that in verse 41? She's stressed, she's worried, she's anxious, she's upset. The same things that choke those seas that Jesus talks about in the parable of Sarah, the, the worries and the cares, which she's fretting over all the little things in life. And Martha's talking about stress relief and Mary's sitting talking theology. And again, I found that when you spend time with God, it does put all those anxieties and stresses into perspective. Charles Spurgeon said, a Bible that's falling apart usually belongs to somebody who's not falling apart. A Bible that's falling apart usually belongs to somebody who's not falling apart. So how do you and I cultivate this time with God? How do you listen well? Can I say stop blaming other people 
Stop saying it's your family's fault or your boss's fault that you have no time. We've all got time. We've all got exactly the same amount of time. It's how we choose to spend our time each day that matters. It's the choices we make. Right? Just start doing it. And start simply. Please don't leave here tonight saying, okay, I'm going to spend an hour a day, seven days a week with God. Start with five minutes. Get into that habit, that routine. If this is going to help, in this booklet, there are daily Bible readings. They take you about five minutes. That's all it is. And then 10 minutes, and then 15 minutes. Just, just build it up. Find that quiet spot. Turn off your distractions. Turn off your computer. Turn off social media. Sit down with a teachable heart. And say, Lord, please speak to me because I'm listening. Do any of you have the, the U version on your phone, that Bible app? Do you know how that started? One man sat in a church in the US and heard a sermon about having time with God. And he felt so convicted he wasn't reading his Bible, so he thought, okay, this week, just five minutes a day. After a week, he was about 10 minutes a day. After a few weeks, it was about 15 minutes a day. And then he thought, I, I really wish I could encourage people around the world to read their Bibles more. And so he developed the YouVersion app, which now has millions, millions of subscribers. I can guarantee you that if you spend time with God in the Word of God, your relationship with God, it will be enriched and it will be transformed. So we listen and then we pray. Because God listens to those who take time to pray. Like prayer is just the natural outgushing of people who love God. So chapter 11, verse 1, Jesus is praying. I love that about Jesus. The Son of God, he takes time to talk to his heavenly Father. He, he models to us our need for prayer, our dependence on God. And his disciples, they are obviously not much of a prayer. When he finished Verse 1, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, would you teach us to pray? Just like John's disciples pray. So Jesus teaches this prayer. We call it the Lord's Prayer, but actually it should be called the Disciples' Prayer. He says, when you pray, you plural, whenever you pray, whenever a Christian prays, this is a kind of a model of what you could pray for. And look at that first word in verse 2. It all starts with your relationship. He says, when you pray, don't say dear sir and don't say your majesty and don't say most holy lord and don't say all powerful one, all distant one. When you pray, you can say father. Abba, father. And that word father, it, it, it signifies both authority and intimacy. Father. It's a term of authority. It's saying, I'm just a child. I'm not the parent. You are my father. And just like a child is dependent on their earthly father for wisdom and strength and provision and protection, we're not self-sufficient as children. We're saying, I need you, Lord. You're my father in heaven. So there's an authority there, but there's also an intimacy there. 189 times in the scripture it says, God is our father. We're his sons. We're his daughters. We are precious, we're loved, we're known by him, we are cherished by him. 
And I know that for some of us that word father, like it does for me, it, it strikes a nerve a bit too close to the surface and, and hurts that we try and um, push down. But when I say that word father, we're supposed to, to know that our father in heaven knows us, loves us, is there for us, he cares for us, and he's always good. We can approach him any time and call him father. Uh, President Obama was talking about his daughters, Sasha and Amalia. He said this, I just wanted my girls to know that I was there for them any time. And the best thing was just talking. I was their dad. So whenever they wanted to talk, I was ready to listen. That's the president of the, of the USA. We have a father in heaven who is longing to listen. So it starts with a relationship. It goes on to reverence. Hallowed be your name, verse 2. Uh, Honoured, holy, set apart. There's no one like you, God. And may your name be hallowed in my life, in the life of your church today. May people see how glorious and majestic and holy and other you are in my life today. Uh, your kingdom come. Uh, Lord, I'm longing for more and more people to know the forgiveness of Christ and I'm longing for that day, Lord, when creation is restored and, and sin is dealt with once and for all and justice is finally done and all chaos is banished. I'm longing for that day of the return of Christ. So it starts with the relationship, moves on to reverence, and then you've got the requests, the verses 3 and 4, the physical needs, Give us each day our daily bread, God. Our basic needs are met by you, our heavenly Father. God, you care for my basic needs, my food, my clothing, my shelter, my health. Everything I've got has come from your generous hand, God. But hey, living in the learn or sure, we forget that, don't we? Because we've got fridges full of food, we've got wardrobes full of clothes. Some of us here have got more than one house to live in. And we think that we've earned it. No, no, no. It's all a gift from a very gracious God. We've got daily physical needs and we've got daily spiritual needs. Verse 4, forgive us our sins. That's our biggest need. Every day coming back to the foot of the cross and saying, Lord, would you forgive that I've stuffed up again. Thank you, Jesus, for dying for me. Thank you for taking my sins. Please forgive me, Lord. But we struggle with the next phrase. We also forgive everyone who sins against us. Uh, Jesus is saying to his disciples, you, you can't ask God to do something for you that you're not willing to do for other people. So don't hold on to grudges and don't fester that bitterness. Forgive. And then, Lord, please protect me from temptation. Please, Lord, would you give me the power to throw off all that sin that so easily entangles. It's a beautiful, beautiful model of prayer, isn't it? intimacy with God, Father in heaven, reverence your name and requesting for our physical needs and our spiritual needs. If you want a book on the Lord's Prayer, this is a great book by Richard Cokin called Our Father, enjoying, I love that word, enjoying God in prayer. But I don't think this is actually what we must articulate every time we pray. The important thing is who you're praying to. And you're praying to a father who is good, 
and loves it, loves it when we ask. The writer of the Hebrews says, let us approach the throne of grace with, what's the next word, with? With confidence or with boldness. As a child of a loving heavenly father, we can have that boldness to approach the king of kings, the Lord of lords, and he hears us. Whatever we ask, whenever we ask, there's no prayer too big and no prayer too small. He's always got an ear to hear us ask. And so Jesus tells this parable. Again, it's unique to Luke. And it's all about being bold, or the word used is shamelessly audacious. Isn't that a great phrase in verse 8? Your shameless audacity, your boldness, your confidence in asking. It's really a simple parable about a man who's got a friend who comes to visit late at night and the man has no food to offer the friend. And there's no Woolworths to go and pop down to buy a loaf of bread. And so he thinks, what can I do to show hospitality to this friend? I've got no food in the house. Oh, I know, I've got another friend. And he'll have food. Oh, but it's midnight. And he and his kids are all in the same bedroom and it's late at night and they're asleep. But he knocks on the door. Again and again and again. Come on, give me some food. And you kind of understand the response of verse 7. Oh, don't bother me. The door's already locked to my children are in bed. I can't get up and give you anything. You understand that. It's late at night. What right did he to ask of anything? But here's the twist in verse 8. I tell you, even though he will not get up and give you bread because of your friendship, friendship is not the basis of, of an answer to his request. No, it's because of your your boldness, your, I love the phrase, shameless audacity, because you are persistent and bold in asking audacious things of this person who you didn't deserve stuff from. Or he'll get up and he'll give you as much as you need. So, here it is, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. Ask, seek, and knock, and God will answer. Not on the basis of a friendship, but on the basis of your audacity and your boldness that you come to the King of kings and the Lord of lords and your heavenly Father and you just persistently and boldly ask. And I know, I know there are people sitting here tonight who are thinking, you know, I have asked and I have sought and I have knocked and it seems like God is silent. I know that. There's a mystery in prayer, isn't there? God often gives us what we ask for, but sometimes he chooses not to. Sometimes he chooses not to give us what we want. But he's still good. I just wonder whether you've learned that God does give generously if we bother to ask him. And the problem is often we don't ask. He invites us to ask, seek, and knock. But we're also self-sufficient, aren't we? We can do life without asking and seeking and knocking. I love the story of the the man who's in full-time ministry and the family is struggling financially. They've got four boys. And at dinner table one night, the youngest, Timmy, says, Mum, I'd love a new shirt. And Mum said, I'm sorry, but we've got no money for a new shirt. He said, oh, I'm going to pray. He says, dear God, please give me a new shirt. And mum adds, 
size seven, please. And every night, Timmy is praying the same prayer. Dear God, please give me a new shirt and mum adds size seven, please. And after a couple of months of asking, mum gets a phone call one night from a Christian man who owns a uh, clothing company and says, oh, it's the end of the season. We've got a whole, left, a whole lot of leftover shirts. And I thought of your family. Would you like some? I thought, we'd love some. What size are they? Are they size seven? And so he brings around 12 size seven shirts. Now, what, what, what's his mum going to do? Just hide these size seven shirts at the back of the wardrobe somewhere where Timmy might stumble across them one day? Of course she doesn't. She lets Timmy ask that night, dear God, Please give me a new shirt, size seven, please. And mum says, Timmy, you can stop asking because God's answered our prayers. And she brings out one T-shirt, size seven, and then two, and then three, and then four, and lays 12 T-shirts, size seven, on the table, and Timmy's eyes is popping out of his head. And there's a little boy who's understood the most important lesson that God does here. And in his good timing, his perfect timing, he does answer. And you know, sometimes he answers in abundance. In abundance. Why? Because he's good. That's the point of verses 11 to 13. He is good. Which of you earthly fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? You don't give your kids bad things. You seek to give them good things. So the problem, for, I think, for us is that sometimes, you know, often, often we go to God and we ask God for snakes and scorpions. We ask God for things that are not good for us. Oh, we think they're going to be good for us, but they're not. They're bad for us. And our Heavenly Father knows that. He's so good. He says, if you then, though you've got evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give you? Here's the shock. He doesn't say give you good stuff. He says give you the Holy Spirit to those who ask him. That's what he really promises, that when you ask, when you seek and when you knock, he promises he will give you his Holy Spirit. The same power that raised Christ from the dead lives in you, comforting you, equipping you, nourishing you, feeding you, enjoying this intimacy with God like you've never experienced before. That's what he promises. That's the gift of prayer. You have a Father in heaven who is so, so good and lavishes you with his Holy Spirit. When I first became a Christian, there was a dear saint called Sybil. What a great name that is. Uh, She was bound to her wheelchair and she couldn't do much in church. But she could read her Bible and she could pray. And the days before email, she'd write me a card with a verse for the week. And she'd tell me she was praying for stuff. And she'd say things like, oh, how was that conversation with Roger? You were trying to share the gospel with him. I was praying for that. And I was like, oh, it was really, really good, actually. You know, he was receptive to the gospel. And she was a woman of God. Now, she couldn't busy herself, but she could read her Bible and she could pray. And she was a beautiful, beautiful woman of God. That's my challenge to us, church. If you want a rich relationship with God, take time to listen and make time to pray.
Let me do that now. Our Father in heaven, we want to thank you that you're a good, good Father. And you give us so many good things. Your ears are always open. Your eyes always see our needs. And you're always more willing to answer than we often are to ask. Help us, Lord, to have time with you, undistracted, unanxious time, precious time, just devouring your word and hearing you speak. We ask that for Jesus' sake.